the X Factor to Resurrect Australia, a People's Bank, and the strategy and lies leading us to war, coming up on today's show. Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 21st of January 2022. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party Research Director Robert Barwick. Welcome. Thanks, Elisa. And on today's show, we're going to be discussing the crucial ingredient to resurrecting Australia's economy, which is right at the verge of absolute breakdown, and the lies the myriad of lies that are leading us down the pathway to war. And there's a couple of important interventions that um, well-qualified people have made that we'll highlight on this show. Mm -hmm. Before we get started, if you like today's show, hit the like button. That'll encourage other people to watch it. Um, you should subscribe and then that way you'll be notified of new shows upcoming and special reports that we put out. You can hit the notification bell as well and share this as widely as possible. So firstly on the show today, the X Factor to Resurrect Australia, a People's Bank. Now um, our economy, as people can see when they just go out to the supermarket um, or you know, try to purchase something or use a, a crucial service, is really at a breakdown point. Um, obviously we've been... Well the, the important stuff is, you can still tune into Netflix at the moment. <laughs> for but now, while we have energy for, still. For now. <laughs> but, yeah, the, the crucial things, and, and not, there's nothing more crucial, at least than a functional health system, and that's where you really see the problems. Uh, absolutely. And, of course, uh, for two years, I mean, right before the pandemic hit Australia, uh, we were stating at the outset, of course, you know, for 30 years we've been saying the economy is at a breakdown point, and we knew that this crisis would expose that reality in a way that's undeniable. So we stated at the outset of 2020 that we needed an emergency economic mobilisation that the government had to marshal all the resources required, the manpower required, the capabilities required to have a, a massive injection to rebuild the crucial infrastructure to keep this country functioning yeah. at every level. When you have a functional economy, uh, Elisa, and things are working, what happens is the work that you do, you, um, you, you create what's called free energy. You, you, you have more ability to work towards luxuries, not necessities, because the necessities are taken care of. That The economy is functional. When you have a breakdown, you have to respond to that. The you, 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 you can't ignore the fact that, okay, yeah. there's necessities now we've got to focus on. In the pandemic, the necessity is health. Right, and that, that's why we said it. We don't believe, we called for a mobilisation because we don't believe in the hidden hand of the free market. Mm -hmm. The hidden hand of the free market is a farce. It's the, pick, it's, the, it's the pickpocket who steals your wallet. That's the hidden hand of the free market. You've got to actually mm. identify the problem. Or, or let me put it this way. Does an army fight a war in a free market way? No. There's the problem. Here's yeah. the resources. Here's what we're going to do about it. And that's what you have to do. And that's why we called for that. But two years in, exactly. it's been terrible. And the free market is what got us to this point. 
um, where we're facing this crunch point. You know, for some people it might be a surprise to suddenly be in this position, but we could see it coming through the policies of many decades yep. that stripped this economy and looted this economy bare and just left us with this just-in-time economy that suddenly, when you're in a crunch point, uh, yep. it's not enough. Um, but what we've pointed out is that, and you can read more about it in this week's Australian Alert Service, which for people who haven't already, you can contact us for a complimentary copy. And for all information we talk about in the show, it's all detailed, uh, you know, in much more detail than we can describe here in that weekly magazine. Um, but the key element, this X factor to resurrecting our economy, even at this advanced stage, is a people's bank, a national credit bank where the government actually issues the credit and directs it into the areas where it's needed to get the economy going. Um, now, we'll talk more about that later, but um, we've brought that issue to the fore because we've taken on a whole series of fights uh, regarding Australia's um, completely insufficient banking system and a banking system, as we know from the Royal Commission and from years earlier than that even, um, is riddled with corruption and criminality and so forth. Um, so we've had a number of campaigns and we want to update a few of those now. Um, first is to discuss the Regional Banking Task Force, which is conducting various kinds of consultations. Of course, many of our viewers would have put in submissions to that inquiry before Christmas. Yeah, we flooded this with submissions calling for a postal bank, which is, which is the immediate solution to that problem. Now, they haven't put out a list of where they're doing community consultations at this stage that we're aware of, but if you hear about them in your area, let us know. But they had uh, the first of one of those community consultations, or we hope it's the first, but it took place in Mildura on the 12th of January. Um, so they, it was a public meeting at Redcliffe's near Mildura. It was hosted by the co-chair of the committee of the Regional Bank Task Force, Senator Perrin Davey, and the member for Mallee, Anne Webster. Um, now... Again, with this regional banking task force, um, our campaign, particularly around Australia Post and the Senate inquiry that took place into the dismissal of Christine Holgate, highlighted this whole issue of the collapse of regional banking because, of course, the local licensed post offices were picking up the slack yeah. of the banks that had shut down. And, in fact, over a 1,000 regional communities had been abandoned by banks. So this was one of the crucial campaigns that led into the setup of this task force um, and that took place. Uh, now, there was some local coverage of this in uh, the Mildura Weekly, for one thing, had a report and they stressed uh, that people at that meeting, one of their greatest concerns was reduced access to cash. Yes. I mean, supposedly people aren't interested in cash anymore and that's why there's been a big push for the cashless economy and that was another one of our critical interventions when we... Um, successfully disrupted the push for a ban on cash transactions over ten thousand dollars. But re but and it's a it's a double-edged sword out there, Elisa, because regional economies cannot function without cash. Because um, just imagine that we're going to live in a Jetsons world one day. Um, well, that that technology may be starting to be rolled out in the cities, but it is not reliable in regional areas. You got to it, it fails all the time. You got to have cash. On the other hand, you can't have too much cash. Because then you have security problems. You've got to have a secure place to store cash. That's what banks are. Exactly. Right? And so the poor, the, the, the poor people, in re this is what came up. They're not getting access to cash because the banks, they're not just closing branches. Think about the bastardry of the banks here. They're ripping out ATMs mm. at a rate 
that's never, like, unprecedented, right? Something like a third of our ATMs have been ripped out in Australia. Ripped out. They, remember when they, we were told to um, move to internet banking or, or, or use your card or whatever, and you don't have to go into the branch anymore, you can go outside and use the ATM? They didn't want us doing that because they don't want people using cash. So they're cutting off access to cash, and then because there's no option, people have to use it in regional areas, they're building up big stockpiles of cash, and there's security problems as a result mm. of that. Yeah. So Senator Perrin Davey was quoted saying, we need to focus on how to fill the services gap. But, I mean, what she should be saying and should be pushing for as a local representative of, you know, people, not just in regions, quite frankly, but in cities too, is a postal bank, which is the solution that we've put forward. Because it does two things. It guarantees services to every part of Australia, including the, the, the suburbs of the capital cities. Wherever there's a post office, that's a bank. And we're not talking about an agency for the private banks. We're talking about its own bank. Because by being its own bank, it breaks the monopoly of these big four banks. And when they... Um, uh, we're we're going to play some clips in a minute about uh, the, some of the media coverage here. But when they, when they first foreshadowed privatising the Commonwealth Bank, Elisa, in the Canberra report back in 1982, that report admitted that if the Commonwealth Bank was privatised bank branches across Australia would shut. Mm. Why? Because those private banks would no longer have to compete with the public option. That's why they'd shut their branches. If you make them compete, you will not, not only have a postal bank that guarantees services, ANZ, NAB, Westpac, CBA, they'd be out there thinking, well, hang on, these sizeable towns, we don't want to lose all our customers to the public bank. We better stay there. That's how, you, that's how you take these banks on. Yeah. Now, the Finance Sector Union, uh, the day before this Mildura meeting, put out a statement, Regional Bank Closures Task Force is a cruel stunt. And, of course, they're thinking it from the standpoint of their members who work in banks and so forth. Well, and they weren't included in the task force, which is no. a, which is a, uh, a, uh, a gross oversight. But they're also calling out something that's true. This task force, did, while it did come out of our inquiry, that's true, it also is one of those things that the government ha happily does just before an election. Yeah. Mm -hmm. right? And they pointed that out, yeah. which was the stunt um, issue, and they said, look, it's too little too late. Um, nothing's going to... The, the banks aren't going to reopen closed branches of their own accord. I mean, you no. would have to make them do it. You would have to have a government regulation. Oh, no, or incentivise them, like I, well, I just like explained before. Exactly. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, they did point to the fact that they and other community organisations representing workers in the field should be on the task force. Um, they pointed to the fact that 11 banks have closed in the Mali region where the meeting was held in the past two years, which is part of over 350 um, over the last two years that have closed down all up. Um, now, we'll show these. There's two clips that we'll play. One is, this was the nightly news reporting on Channel 9 and on Channel 7, which also gives a a good um, description of what's taking place here. And when you watch these clips, aside from the information that, that, that comes through in the coverage, bear in mind this is the, the nightly, the main nightly broadcast mm. of Channel 9 and Channel 7. This kind of attention is, uh, is showing that our campaign is working, right? People, we've put a lot of attention on this and the media is starting to pick it up. Um, and, and this creates the climate where, this, you know, you can discuss solutions and expect to, them to stick, expect to actually make some progress on them. So have a look. Bank branches are closing at the fastest rate ever. Jobs are being lost and regional communities say they feel abandoned. 
but the federal government says it's keeping a close eye on the situation. Here's Chris Kohler. Here in Marupna, Andrew Jones's news agency has been two doors down from the bank for 20 years. But on Thursday, the local NAB is disappearing for good. Disappointed? We, you know, we have to accept what the umpire says because we can't change it. Unfortunately, they're used to it. The town just outside Shepparton used to have three of the big four banks, but soon even this Westpac ATM will disappear. And with face-to-face -face service now gone, locals are most concerned for the elderly. They're the ones I feel probably really sad for. They don't have a choice. We're looking at a pretty, um, a pretty bleak future for bank branches, especially in regional Australia. It's clear big banks are evacuating. Just in the last year, major branches have been closed in Balan, Port Ferry, Heathcote, Yarram, Torquay, Namurka, Warrnambool, St Leonard's, Tatura, Stall, St Arnold, Lakes Entrance and dozens of other Victorian towns. But the problem goes much further. In just four years, regional Australia has lost nearly a quarter of the bank branches it had left. These are centres of commerce, these are... Uh, very, very uh, important parts of the Australian economy. A federal task force has been established to investigate the rapid pace of the closures. Assistant Treasurer Michael Suker is the co-chair. We're very keen to continue working through this process and um, delivering on some really tangible outcomes at the end for regional Australia. For banks, it's unfortunately simple. NAB says 93% of its customer interactions now happen outside branches. But while closing them may make financial sense, it's regional Australians who are being left behind. Are you disappointed? Of course we are. But it's the sign of the times, isn't it? Unfortunately. Chris Kohler, Nine News. Bank branches are closing at a rapid rate across Melbourne with growing concern that our most vulnerable are being left behind. Unions say the big four banks are using the pandemic as an excuse to cut costs. The days of doing your banking in person could be numbered. With going through the largest number of branch closures that we've had since the 90s and the early 2000s. The major banks have closed more than 350 branches across the country during the pandemic. Dozens of them are in Victoria, taking a toll on more remote communities. Older people do like face-to-face -face banking. People have been used to going into their local bank in a particular town and then we find that the bank closes and they have to drive maybe 100 kilometres to the next branch. The big four say more of their customers are moving online. They haven't been allowed to go out and about in their normal manner and the banks are using that as a reason to say people have changed their way of banking forever. Westpac is in the process of shutting another four branches, including Nidri, Hampton, its Bank of Melbourne branch at Brandon Park and Hastings. The banking giant has defended the decision, saying when we do close a branch, it is not a decision we take lightly, taking into consideration customer usage, location and proximity to other banking services. Most Australians do their banking online, but advocacy groups say around 2.5 million don't have the choice because they don't have the internet. This is not an insubstantial group of people and they're not all older people. The poor people of Australia don't have technology. At, at their fingertips. Last October, the federal government launched a regional banking task force to address the closures, but the finance sector union wasn't included. It is nothing more than a political stunt. The union's calling for a moratorium on further closures while the inquiry is conducted. Ashley Kanowski, 7 News.
Now, we also want to talk a little bit about debanking, and there was a um, inquiry, a Senate inquiry that looked at debanking, which finished up late last year. Um, and the chair of that inquiry, Liberal Senator Andrew Bragg, afterwards pointed out that the allegations of debanking suggest banks are acting, quote unquote, like a cartel, protecting their fat margins on remittances and cash transfers. Um, there's Again, this has been the result of a lot of the campaigns we've been fighting for. What was also announced on the 16th of December was the Council of Financial Regulators, which is a Treasury, Reserve Bank, APRA and ASIC, are setting up a working group on debanking, which will also include the Department of Home Affairs and Austrac, which monitors money laundering. Um, but you put together a report this week yeah. of an update on the debanking front and one of the um, figures that we've uh, cited and the implications that that's had for his business. Well, it's important that, that these inquiries are happening, right? So Senator Andrew Bragg has picked this up. Now, one, their motivation, though, is there's this thing called fintech, right, which is the new financial institutions that are popping up just purely online, taking advantage of that. And in that general area you include crypto, right? So there's a whole crypto sphere out there now um, and without commenting on the, 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 the value of that or otherwise, it's there. And what happened, what's happening is, as we first highlighted two years ago, when we first told the story of the Melbourne Gold Company, who I'm going to update people on, Michael Kukulka's Melbourne Gold Company, um, we could see that the debanking the banks were doing, as a cartel, Andrew Bragg is right, was targeting any business that was in any way in competition with the banks, right? So here's a, here's a gold and silver bullion company. There's crypto. And these are people can get into these things and take their money out of banks and put them in that if they choose to, right? And the banks are being aggressive. Cash remittance companies as well. There's a lot, there's a lot of people, you know, um, you know, from immigrant families, et cetera, who still remit company uh, money back to their homeland to, for relatives, et cetera. The smaller cash remittance companies are much more flexible and efficient at it than the big banks. The big banks charge big fees. So the banks are targeting them. And this has been carnage in the whole sector of the economy. And that's, not, that's a non-bank sector, but it's in the financial sector. And we've been highlighting that. Um, so it's good. It's finally getting attention. But lo and behold, just as the Council on Financial Regulators, of Financial Regulators says we're going to do an inquiry into this, a task force type thing, um, the Melbourne Gold Company, which... Uh, has been thoroughly debanked by all institutions, not just one, mm. every single one of them. And so what he's had to do, because you, you, cannot, you cannot run a business in Australia entirely independent of the banks. You must have access to the bank somewhere. He's had to use um, uh, bank accounts that are, not, that are less formal, right, that are not his, essentially, through, through uh, proxies, etc. And that's... that's that's not his decision. That's the bank's decision. But he's had to do it. So the banks have started telling customers who come in. This, is, this happened a number of times with CBA over Christmas. Customers would come in to, to line up at the bank to order a transfer of money from their account to the account that they've been provided so they can pay for their gold. They want to buy gold. Here's the account. Transfer the money to the account. And... For a long time, the banks have been saying, oh, you know, are you sure you want to do that, et cetera? And you, if you, if you draw, withdraw any money from the banks, you get the third degree, right? This time, the bank, the CBA started absolutely refusing to do it, just point blank refusing. It's not their money. It's the customer's money. 
They just refused to do it. Mm. And not only would, they, would that happen, they would take the customer into a back room and they would interrogate them about, do you know who you're doing business with? As if that account belongs to some kind of a criminal operation. Mm. It is not criminal. He's more legitimate than the, the banks because there's these anti-money laundering laws that you have to comply with. It's not the Melbourne Gold Company that gets fired for not complying with them. He's in full compliance with them. It's the private, it's CBA that gets a record fine for not complying with them. Westpac. Right? Westpac, etc. Um, and this is the banks really going overboard to enforce their debanking policy, right, even in that way. Now, this is, you know, okay, so the problem you have, Elisa, is the, bank, the banks are private companies. In a sense, they get to do what they like. Mm. There is an argument that because these, Australia's big four banks especially, are essentially government guaranteed, everybody knows that, right, then that should have a trade-off. There should, be a, there should be a social responsibility that comes with being a government guaranteed institution, i.e. you don't get to make those decisions. You have to bank with every legitimate business. But nobody has come to that position yet except us. On the other hand, we do have the ultimate solution again, the postal bank. Mm. Create a public bank. When you have a public bank that is not there to, to make profits for shareholders, it's there to service the, serve the public, right, and it's backed by the government, it is not allowed to discriminate. So it can, do, it can make sure that, if, if, that uh, when, the banks, when the banks deny banking services to regional communities, they can go to the postal bank. When the banks deny banking services to legitimate businesses, they can go to the postal bank. When the banks deny access to cash, the postal bank will support cash. That's what a postal bank can do and just pull the rug out from under all this bad behaviour. And the minute it happens, watch the banks change their behaviour. Yep. Now, the other thing about a government-run bank, because one crucial aspect we've been discussing is creating an economic recovery and making sure the economy can function from the top-down big infrastructure projects to the local businesses. Um, but the other thing, apart from that continuity of crucial banking services, is re-establishing trust yep. in the banking system. In the financial system, yeah. Ex exactly. And in the regulatory framework that oversees that banking system, um, which is where what brings us to an update on the Sterling First campaign that we've been uh, engaged in for some time because, of course, Sterling First is a case where ASIC uh, foresaw issues uh, and did not intervene to prevent over 100 Australian pensioners losing their life savings and some of them being forced out of their homes um, because they bought into a scheme which was supposed to give them somewhere to live when in you, their when, retirement years. When you say foresaw issues, in 2015, ASIC is aware that a scheme starts that is targeting elderly people who are the most vulnerable investors to say, sell your home Use that money to pay to give to us. That will pay your rent for the rest of your life in advance. You never have to worry about that, mm -hmm. right? And that's what the scheme was, except ASIC knew the man running the scheme had just been discharged from bankruptcy that year in 2015. His name's Ray Jones. And he had previously um, uh, lost investors $30 million in similar schemes. ASIC knew that. Mm. ASIC knew that... It, that year it received three complaints, including an internal complaint about the way, the, 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 the way this, this uh, uh, company structure was running and the various things they were doing and the misrepresenting and advertising and all sorts of things. There are all kinds of questions about it. When ASIC got the field of those complaints and knew those things, there were a few investors, sorry, 
on making the mistake and call them investors. They weren't investors. There were a few customers, tenants, who'd put in about 400 grand. ASIC could have acted then. Instead, they did nothing. They said, this is not our concern. It's not our job to regulate these sort of things. It's our job just to register them, right? Knowing that, and by the time, fast forward to 2019, when the complaints had built up enough and even the Western Australian Department had complained to ASIC, etc. By the time of ASIC eventually acted, there were over 140 tenants who'd put in $18 million and they've lost it all. And mm. they're now being evicted and they're dying because they're elderly people. Yeah, have a look at the uh, media release we put out on this on Tuesday at our website uh, because the head of the Banking and Finance Consumer Support Association, Denise Braley, who's been fighting for these victims from the get-go, has written um, you know, hard-hitting letters to Prime Minister Scott Morrison and to WA Premier Mark McGowan. And to Anthony Albanese to, to let him know that she's written to these other two. Mm. <laughs> Pointing out what you just said, essentially, that ASIC knew Sterling's directors were serial offenders in previous corporate failures. She yeah. pointed to similar schemes that had collapsed prior to Sterling First, which ASIC was aware of, which should have put them on alert. Because um, they like to say this is a novel scheme, mm. except she proves it's not a novel scheme. If it's a novel scheme, they can say, oh, well, how are we expected to know whether it would work or not? Well, the precedents show that it was always at great risk. Yep. And she even pointed out, um, you know, particularly important in the letter to McGowan, that the WA a gov, WA government department engaged in this actually helped Sterling First meet the conditions <laughs> they needed to meet to get their scam off the ground. Um, so, you know, there's a whole shocking series of things here. She pointed out to Morrison that the whole buyer beware ideology where, you know, ASIC doesn't act to intervene to protect people, but, oh, it's up to you, you have to check everything and it's all, you know, the onus is on the investor, um, is a cop-out that came out of Prime Minister and Cabinet uh, yeah. offices. And she also stated unequivocally that Sterling first, this whole scam, is perhaps the worst Ponzi collapse she's ever had to investigate. And coming from Denise Brady, that's something, because she's, she's easily the most experienced person in Australia in picking up the pieces from these things and warning people about them. The essence of these letters, uh, Elisa, was she put Morrison and McGowan on the spot. Um, you two have the power to fix this, fix it now. And there's only one way to fix it. It's a cheque for $18 million plus expenses. Repay these people their money, help them save their homes, stay in their homes so they don't get evicted, like a number of them already have, um, and so that they can, they can um, see out their final years. Uh, and this means the government, these departments, two departments, taking responsibility. Now, this is a challenge for Australians because we're always expected to take responsibility, but do we expect government departments to take responsibility when it's their screw-up? And you're told not to. You're conditioned not to. Well, we can't tolerate that, right? And this, this, look, there's more, there's more victims out there than these Sterling First victims, but this particular case just, in a sense, ticks all the boxes of how, of how dysfunctional, deliberately dysfunctional the system is, and that's why we're highlighting this one. And that is the solution. And if we can... We've, we've spent the last week or two, uh, like everybody else, talking about the Novak Djokovic fiasco... But, what, but one of the things I want to point out about the Novak Djokovic fiasco is when the government wanted to do something, stuff the rules, it has the power. He did that for political purposes. It's not saving us from COVID by kicking him out of Australia. What a joke. They wanted to make a political statement. They think that's a popular thing to do, and they did it because that's in their interest. 
And, and people are shocked at me. And can the law work like this? Well, when they want it to, it can. So don't give us this guff about, oh, there's going to have to be an inquiry um, into whether, into, or we're going to have to set up a scheme to compensate people so it's objective and arm's distance. Don't give us that. You screwed up Frydenberg. Your department screwed up because you oversee ASIC. McGowan's department screwed up. Now, he wasn't in government, but, the, but he's the, the, the responsible entity. Pay these people and stop killing them with your inaction. Now, we've got to move on to our next topic, but stay tuned because the committee that inquired into Stirling First will report on the 1st of February, so we'll have more to say at yeah. that point. Uh, right, secondly, the strategy and lies leading us to war. And I want to open this segment with a stark statement. The Morrison-Dutton blind hostility to China has cost livelihoods. If they continue, it will cost lives. Now, that is the opening of a statement that we issued as a media release today. It was written by John Lander, who worked in the China section at the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. He worked as Deputy Ambassador to China, as well as in many other diplomatic roles. He's a, he's a retired senior diplomat. He had all his, his, his career in, in uh, the Department of Foreign Affairs was at a very, very senior level. He was even the ambassador to um, Iran for three years in the 80s. Um, he is one of that older generation who have come out in real alarm at where this is heading and this is a major intervention and people need to see the landscape through the eyes of people like John Lander and his generation. Mm. Um, and what his he, he's written a more extensive article which is published in our Australian Alert Service, was originally published uh, at Pearls and Irritations, uh, where he describes Peter Dutton's role in, as we've been talking about again regularly on the show, beating the drums of war regarding China. Uh, and what he points out is that this is straight out of the playbook of an American who was the key guy in producing the, the um, Americans' 2018 national defence strategy. That was the statement that redefined defence strategy as the main targets of which were China and Russia, yep. as opposed to Iran or North Korea and or terrorism, terrorism yep. and so forth. Um, it put um, this national power competition with big um, powers like Russia and China at the very top of the list of priorities of the United States. Um, now, this fellow who I've mentioned who was the key uh, author behind that report is a guy called Elbridge Colby, and he wrote a book called Strategy of Denial, which is referenced in the headline of um, John Lander's article, which Dutton read this book apparently over the Christmas period, his holiday reading. Yeah. Uh, so Elbridge Colby is one of these patrician Americans, yeah, the, the, their version of the Blue Bloods. Um, his grandfather actually was the head of the CIA, William Colby. Now, William Colby, look, I don't want to sound pro-CIA, but there's, you know, not all of them are as bad as each other, right? Some are, some, um, some are better, some are worse. William Colby was one of the better, if I can say that, heads of the CIA. And in fact, he'd, he was murdered in very mysterious circumstances in 1996. So that's a whole story itself. But this is an example where whatever good tendencies he may have had, his offspring uh, is an idiot um, because he, he's just stuck in this view that um, America at all costs has to maintain its position um, and as, as the, the dominant power in a unipolar world, except he acknowledges that that ship has sailed somewhat because you cannot deny that how powerful economically China is, right? So America cannot say anymore that 
we're number one. It's just clearly not true. So now the whole idea of the strategy of denial is we have to make, we Americans, it's our responsibility to make sure that China cannot dominate, not the world, even its own region. Mm. Yeah, in fact, his book states, this is a quote, denying China hegemony over Asia is the cardinal objective of US grand strategy. And... Well, look, and before you go on, just bear in mind, I would argue there's no evidence that that's China's objective. No. Now, there's a default reality that will happen when you're a big power like China. It will dominate. The region. But look at the way it treats its neighbours. It actually prefers to do bilateral uh, relationships and solve problems. And, yes, there are tensions. And China is the kind of country to say, OK, we'll, we'll agree to disagree on this until we can work out a framework to solve it, right, uh, etc. And that even includes the South China Sea. It is not going around and dictating except insofar as it's the Americans and Australians and British in there in the South China Sea who are saying to China, it's our, our white, we white countries, it's our responsibility to protect these Asian, smaller Asian countries around you from you mm-hmm. and we're going to sail right up to your coast to do it. And then China says, well, OK, um, good luck. We have our own way of dealing with that. Now, Dutton following Colby's prescriptions is, you know, really terrifying because Colby believes that a limited war between China and Taiwan would serve the US objective of inhibiting China's rise in the region, in the world. And this is the worst part because how do you get that limited war? You provoke... This is what Colby lays out. You Mm. provoke... you, You provoke China to fire the first shot. Because he, he argues if you can provoke China to fire the first shot, then the ASEAN countries, you know, Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia, Singapore, uh, Cambodia, South Korea, etc., those countries will um, be angry at China and they'll side with the Americans, the Anglo-Americans, which at the moment they're probably not inclined to do. So he wants to set up that kind of scenario where China's provoked into firing the first shot. And how do you do that? You encourage the Taiwanese to declare independence because they call it declaring independence, Elisa. What, what that actually means is different. It's not actually declaring independence. It's seceding. Mm. Secession was the, was the reason Abraham Lincoln declared war on the South in the Civil War and 640,000 US troops died to stop it or in that war to stop it, Right. America wouldn't tolerate succession, secession. No country in the world will tolerate secession. Taiwan is a province of China. The whole world acknowledges that, right? Almost all the world at the UN, etc. That's what declaring independence means, secession. And that would provoke China. And that's where what you said earlier about Peter Dutton reading this book mm. is very significant. Because what has Peter Dutton been saying all year, all the, all the last 12 months? He has gone further and further out on a limb talking crazy stuff, which is totally provocative, and now he revealed at Christmas that he's read this book, which is the, which is the, um, the, the prescription for this. Yeah, and if he didn't believe it, he wouldn't even mention it. Of course. <laughs> and John is pointing out, the, go through what he's well, saying, I, the danger yeah, of this. I urge you to read the article because he, he points out various of the provocations that the US is running in order to provoke yeah. China to instigate um, a, a conflict with Taiwan um, from freedom of navigation uh, exercises. And, you know, John Lander takes it wa- right back to the pivot to Asia because it was the US that said, we're moving the bulk of our military operations into Asia. 
surrounding China. I mean, the US, as he points out, has over 800 bases, many of them in that region. China has one overseas base. Um, you've got the US bringing Taiwan as treating it as a separate country into various uh, international organisations, inviting it to summits like the Democracy Summit that happened before Christmas. Uh, and as Lander points out, if, you know, this goes like they want it to go and there is a conflict and Australia intervenes to help Taiwan per Dutton's recommendation, uh, the Australian Navy would be obliterated to the obvious Chinese superiority. Australian c control and command centres would be wiped out with missiles. We have no missile defences. Uh, the US would not end up, he believes, assisting us directly but only providing arms support to the benefit of the military-industrial complex. ASEAN and India would be extremely unlikely to support us because they are in the region and their economies depend upon China. And in the same um, vein, Australia, which depends on economic arrangements with China, our economy would be blown up in that regard as well. So he said, we need, Australia needs to adopt a reasonable, balanced approach and publicly reaffirm the One China Principle, renewing commitment to a peaceful negotiated solution to the, the so-called Taiwan problem. And, um, Alyssa, just to explain that, why he said reaffirm, because that is actually our position. Back in 1971, 72, when the West um, accepted China into the United Nations, etc., that came with a precondition that the, that the world had to acknowledge there was one China, right? And Taiwan is a province of China. And we put that out in a statement in Paris in 1972. The Americans said the same thing. That is still our official policy. So when Dutton and these Wolverines in Parliament are carrying on like cut snakes, um, they are going against Australia's official policy. So the Chinese don't know anymore if we hold by that. But as we, we, we published in our publication a few years ago, um, that, uh, uh, sorry, no, it wasn't a few years ago, it was just last year. Keyshaw, the, the, former, the former foreign minister of Singapore, and the former Singapore ambassador to the United Nations, uh, Kishore Mahbubani, he did this. They did this interview where they made the point just to explain to the West that this question of one China. They said it's not a small thing for China. It's the bedrock on which they agreed to deal with the with the, with the outside world. You accept this one China will deal with you, right? They said this is not a card you can play. It's the bedrock, and if we trash that. We will be the ones pushing the situation to war, which, as John lays out, will be annihilated by. So the best thing we can do, if we seriously don't want a war, and there's plenty of people in Parliament who don't want it. I can't read Peter Dutton's mind, but he'll tell you he doesn't want it and does everything to cause it. If we seriously don't want a war, just reaffirm our current policy. It'll, be the, it'll send the best message to China of all. If the Australian government puts out a statement saying, we stand by that statement in 1972 in Paris, right, that there's one China and Taiwan is the province of China, there'll be a big sigh of relief, right? And that will go a long way towards solving everything. And this is why, you know, we have to intervene like this. So this can become a matter of life and death. So go to the um, website, read this article. We put out a press release about this that will lead you to it. Uh, and Lisa, we're going to keep highlighting it uh, until we solve the problem because... <laughs> people, yeah, we get criticised for this because there's 80% 80, 80 of Australians have been brainwashed to be anti-China yeah. so, and, and I tell you you've been brainwashed because it's happened in three years. Four years ago you weren't talking about China. Mm. You weren't. 
right? You're talking about, mostly you're talking about Muslims, the Muslim invasion of Australia, right? Terrorism, all this kind of stuff. The media, when it comes to these foreign policy matters, the media dangles you and suddenly there's been a sudden shift and it's all about China, 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 China. And the, the end result of that, though, is a, it's not us building a big coalition to go in and kick the crap out of a poor Middle Eastern country, right? We are going to annihilate ourselves. And so we start from that point and work our way back and say, what do we have to do to stop that? And it's not, this is not appeasement because China is not the boogeyman you think it is. This is actually saying, let's, let's, let's uh, ignore the lies of the liars that have got us into wars for 20 years. We know they're liars. Stop, stop paying attention to their lies. Let's find a way to actually solve problems in international relations. And the Citizens Party will keep highlighting that until we do save Australia from this war danger. Yep. So that's all we've got time for. Don't forget to like the uh, show and subscribe and share as widely as you can. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Robert. Thanks, Lisa. And tune in again next week. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.